And then he saw for the first time in his life a corpse, a dead person. And he saw for the first time in his life a really ill person. And these, the sight of someone old and someone ill and someone dying shocked his mind. I don't know if any of you recall for yourselves maybe seeing a dead person for the first time. Do you remember that? Did that make an impression on you? Yes. It kind of startles us, doesn't it? So these three, aging, illness, and dying, came to be known as what are called the heavenly messengers. Messengers of reality, you could say, of how it actually is. In the Buddha's case, it caused him to go on this search, caused him to feel this urgency to awaken so that he would understand reality and at the same time not be overwhelmed by these eventualities, not be frightened, not be uh, sunk by these realities. So the fourth heavenly messenger was the sight he saw of a wandering sadhu, a monk, who seemed to be quite serene in his demeanor, quite at peace with the corpse and the ill person and the old person. He seemed un, 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 uh, shaken by the sight of these other this this kind of suffering. So the Buddha took took some inspiration from seeing this serene and uh, beautiful example of this path of awakening. So the awakening in the title of this retreat is is in reference to that other messenger. So we know from our own experience, and we've heard some stories here since we've been on retreat about how it is for old people in the dominant culture that we all live in, and how it is uh, that we sometimes experience uh, being stereotyped in a negative way or projected upon as old and therefore invisible or useless or you know, it's too slow or whatever it is. We've, see, we've experienced that, we've seen that. And however subtle or not these are, they do affect us. Because as we get old, we do become more vulnerable. Our bodies are less sturdy, our energy perhaps is less resilient, our sense of uh, pride in what we do becomes shaken a little bit. What is our value? What is our worth? What is our purpose? These are all real questions, and I hope they're questions that we will get to before this week is up. So we see that uh, as we get older, there's a sense often of loss. And loss in human life is inevitable. It is part of the human journey. Let's not fool ourselves. There's a poem I love to read by Jennifer Wellwood about this very truth. So I'd like to share it with you. It's called The Dakini Speaks. It says, My friends, let's grow up. Let's stop pretending we don't know the deal here. Or if we truly haven't noticed, let's wake up and notice. Look, everything that can be lost will be lost. It's simple. How could we have missed it for so long? Let's grieve our losses fully like human ripe beings. But please, let's not be so shocked by them. Let's not act so betrayed as though life had broken her secret promise to us. Impermanence is life's only promise to us, and she keeps it with ruthless impeccability. To a child, she seems cruel, 
but she is only wild and her compassion exquisitely precise. She strips away the unreal to show us the real. This is the true ride. Let's give ourselves to it. That's a strong statement, isn't it? It's kind of a warrior's cry, it feels like. You know, like, okay, let's not, let's not fool ourselves. Let's look at the, true, the truth. Let's look at the truth. So I want to speak a little bit about how our Dharma practice takes us in that same direction of waking us up to what is real, what is true. And how at the same time as it's waking us up, which can sometimes feel, you know, kind of like uh, startling or can shake us. It, it like, like she says, it's wild. It's kind of wild what happens, you know, sudden illness, sudden death, sudden this or sudden that can shake us very strongly. But it also is part of this awakening to what is real and what is true. And the Dharma, so the Dharma wakes us up. It also, and this is so important, gives us the tools for riding these stormy waves, for helping us navigate when things get, you know, stormy and kind of chaotic. It also is a protection. The Dharma is a protection for us. It will keep us uh, I mean, it's not like, you know, no harm, but it will be a protection for helping us find our way. So I'd like to talk a little bit about this word dharma. The dharma is a word for the truth of things, of how things are. The first night of retreat, which already seems like <laughs> in the distant past somewhere. You remember the first night of the retreat? Were you here? Were any of you here that first night? I was barely here, but I think I was here. It just seems so long ago already. But anyway, uh, that first night we took refuge. We took refuge in the Buddha. We took refuge in the Dharma. We took refuge in the Sangha. So the Dharma, in some sense, is seen in this practice as a refuge. Which is interesting, because sometimes to look at something like impermanence feels, as I said, kind of like it shakes us. It doesn't feel like a refuge. It feels like a, ah, ah, like that. But it is called a refuge. So let's look a little more closely at the word. The truth that the Dharma represents is not a philosophical truth or a theoretical truth, but a truth that can only be discovered in your own experience. It's an experiential truth, a lived truth, a living truth, we could say. It is alive in your own direct experience. And we heard this afternoon some very vivid expressions of that. People discovering, having insights into something that they hadn't seen before. That is the Dharma at work. It's showing us something that we didn't know before. And as we practice, we, we are encouraged more and more to come into direct ex- contact with our experience and, and learn from that, from that contact. As humans, we are not necessarily in touch with how things are. The human mind is very... It likes to dance around, and it does a lot of things to kind of throw up smoke screens. So we don't actually see things how they are. We see things as uh, how we, we want them to be, 
We see things how we fear them to be. We see things as how we think they should be. But how things actually are is what we discover as we practice mindfulness. So the Buddha described this Dharma in a beautiful way that I'd like to share with you. It's often chanted at some point in a retreat or if you spend time with the monastics, I think they chant it quite frequently. Uh, The Dharma is described and I'll give you both the Pali language of it and the English language, the Dharma, the truth of things, as it is discovered, is described in these ways. To be seen here and now, timeless, inviting all to come and see. Pertinent, to be seen by the observant for themselves. So the Pali is sanditiko, akaliko, ehipasiko, opanayiko, pachatam, venditabo, vinyuhiti. That's the Pali. It means nothing to you, but you may hear these words at some point and know what they're referring to. So, to be seen here and now, what is that about? That means that the Dharma, this truth, is to be found in your own experience in the present moment. To be seen here and now. That's the only place it can be found. It can't be found in the past. It can't be found in some philosophy. It can only be seen as a living truth right here and now in your own experience. Timeless. It is, can be found throughout all of time. It is not subject to time in the usual sense of the word. It is available at any time, at all times. It is universal. It is true for everyone, this truth. It is not a particularly, it's not dependent on your particular life. It is timeless. It is beyond the conditions of one person's life, one person's unique ability to understand or see something. Inviting all to come and see. It is It is a truth that anyone with interest can find for themselves. All it takes is the willingness to look, the willingness to explore in that way with mindfulness. The Dharma is said to be pertinent, meaning it's it's really uh, relevant to our situation. It's not just like a... Uh, a little hobby or something that, you know, is sort of interesting to explore. Like you might study, um, you know, some other subject, like, I don't know, antique guns or something. You know, just, you, you learn a lot of stuff, but it's not particularly pertinent to anything. But the Dharma is very pertinent. It will help you in your life. It is relevant to what you're struggling with, what your own... Uh, situation is. And lastly, it is said to be seen by the observant for themselves. No one else can do the seeing for you. You can't get it from somebody else. We can say words that point you, but the seeing has to be done by each of us by the observant, for ourselves. So, he pointed to this dharma, this truth, over and over again as the path, as saying, this is the way to awaken, to be in contact with this unfolding moment-to-moment truth, to discover for ourselves what it's 
pertinence is, what its usefulness is, what it can help us with, how it can be useful to us in our lives. And he claimed that this truth has the power to liberate us from the tenacious hold of greed, of aversion, and delusion. That's pretty good, right? Anybody not want those things? No, I want to be greedy. I love being greedy. I think I'll just stay with the greed. Thank you very much. Or the aversion, or the delusion. No, it has this capacity. How many things in the world have that capacity to liberate us from our own bad habits? Not many. So it is seemingly so ordinary, seemingly so available, so simple in a way. Just take the time to be in touch with your own experience and things start to happen. This, this, this understanding grows that allows us to let go, to see better ways of functioning, of, of being in the world. Less greedy, less aversive, more clear, less deluded. So, by practicing in this way, we come to see, moment by moment, little by little, how things are. Again, not as we want them to be necessarily, not as we fear them to be, but how they are. This frees us actually from misperception, because what we discover over time, and it's a humbling kind of discovery, is that we think things are one way. And we discover often that we are mistaken. We find out that what we thought was to be true is, is simply not so. The classic story, the classic teaching story of this process of waking up from misperception is, is the story I will tell you once again, you've probably heard it before, or maybe you've never heard it. It's really, really a good story. There's a lot in this story, as simple as it is. So, you're out walking on a path at Spirit Rock. It's just about this time of night. You're on a path with a friend. You're walking along, enjoying the evening air. Maybe it's a little bit darker, but not too much darker. And suddenly in, the, in, in front of you on the path, you see a coiled something, and it looks like a snake. And you're like, oh, my God, is it a rattlesnake? It probably is, because they talk about that at Spirit Rock a lot. You know, watch out for the rattlesnakes, and so suddenly there is one. Yeah, I thought I'd see one. Here it is. I see it. It's a rattlesnake. So you're, and your friend tiptoes a little closer, a little more brave, gets a little closer and sees, oh, it's not a snake, it's a rope. See, it's a rope, it's not a snake at all. So how do you feel? What's your feeling that's here? Relief. Ah, my goodness, it's not a snake. As if you've been freed from some, you know, danger. Not a snake. So what does this story mean? It means that a lot of times we see snakes where there are only ropes. And we attribute to that, those ropes, all the qualities of a snake, and we scare ourselves. A lot of fear in the world is produced in just this way. So it is not that there was, a, a, there was ever a snake. There was never a snake. <laughs> it was always a rope. But we misperceived it. And that's what mindfulness can help us see through our own misperceptions on subtle levels and on very obvious levels. So let me give you some more mundane examples. There was a woman who came to Spirit Rock often, and she 
told a story towards it was somewhat towards the beginning of her practice many years ago she she told a story about how it was to practice mindfulness when she went home after retreat and she said you know i always really loved camembert cheese until after this retreat when i went home once again my husband and i we were having camembert cheese and i actually tasted it for the first time <laughs> and she realized she really didn't like it at all but she had never noticed until now that's one example other times we have ideas about what will make us happy in order to be happy i must have what comes to your mind particular kind of car, a house full of stuff, uh, you know, 25 pairs of shoes, I mean whatever it is in our consumer culture that just, you know, is always offering us more ideas for how to be happy. Take some more shoes or hats or whatever it is, cars. Don't you need more? <laughs> more, more, more. So we get the idea that yeah I just I'm not happy so I I must not have enough stuff. Okay. With mindfulness you might discover that actually having less stuff is much more conducive to your well-being. I think this is a kind of an aging story because part of what aging is what we're looking at is perhaps a downsizing in our living area or accommodations or you know giving stuff to our kids or to the grandchildren or just not wanting so much of a house to clean or whatever it is or we need to clean out the garage because we have a lifetime full of stuff out there Have you ever gone out to the attic or the garage and there you are. You open one box and it's like, "Oh." <laughs> so you begin to sense that it's time to lighten the load. It's time to let go and that by doing that you are actually feeling quite lighter yourself. So mindfulness can correct us, correct our sense of what brings true happiness, true well-being in ways that are both mundane and profound. So part of what mindfulness shows us in this simple way of just coming in contact with the truth of our experience it 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 shows us the need actually to let go on all these different levels that i've been speaking about also of our assumptions and beliefs and expectations that we might have hidden ones this is where inquiry can be so helpful because in the context of a retreat and of speaking about things we may bump into some of our own assumptions and beliefs that perhaps we need to inquire into a little more carefully for example when we were young we may have thought that getting older would be a real drag you know like you had views of old people i know i did i wasn't you know i thought old people especially i i don't know why it annoyed me so much but when i saw old people sitting around in a park somewhere or on the side of the road on the in a cafe just sort of sitting there you know and watching the world go by i would think oh get a life what's wrong with these old people you know i was pretty judgmental well surprise surprise Now I find that doing nothing is one of my favorite things. I love sitting around not doing much. What a surprise. There may be other discoveries that you have made in your own aging process that don't fit 
your previous beliefs or assumptions. When we are young, we are largely preoccupied with what the Buddha called the worldly winds. The worldly winds. Some of you know what these are. Some of you perhaps have not heard of these before. What are they? They are four pairs of opposites that kind of uh, describe the aim or uh, purpose of our worldly life. What are they? Success and failure, pleasure and pain, pride and shame, praise and blame. These are what the world defines as worthy of our effort. We are meant to be successful. We are meant to have as much pleasure as possible. We are meant to uh, be praised, and we we hope to be praised by others, admired, you know, extolled for our achievements or our whatever it is that we're good at. And we want to feel good about ourselves. We want to have a sense of, yeah, I'm, I'm good, you know, I'm doing well. There's nothing wrong with these, but just to see, see the effort is in the direction of things, like the Buddha called them the worldly winds. Why did he call them winds? Because they're constantly changing and often cannot be controlled, just as we cannot control the winds. Can we control the wind? A little more wind, please. A little turn up the machines. We need no. Winds, who can say what causes the wind to blow? In the same way that worldly ambitions are sometimes successful, sometimes not. Sometimes we are praised, sometimes we are blamed. Teaching is a fabulous experience of praise and blame. Just, you couldn't ask for a better experience of praise and blame than being a public teacher. You're a sitting duck. So it's part of our practice to deal with that. So these are the pursuits and aspirations and for us as people in the Western world, the fairly relatively uh, you know, comfortable and wealthy Western world, this is, this, is, this is what we believe to be a good life, having these aspirations and accomplishing some of them or all of them. Of course, you know, with the with the winds and the, how they how they exhibit impermanence, how they show us the truth of impermanence. Sometimes they show us the good news. Oh, I was failing and now I, I'm succeeding. Fantastic! That's always nice. You know, when something is going wrong, you're happy to count on the law of impermanence. It won't last that long. But when things are going really well and you somehow assume it's going to last forever, this pleasure or this praise or this, you know, whatever, success is going to be yours forever. (laughs) Forever is a delusion of the young. Remember that song, I'm going to live forever. I'm going to learn how to fly. There's other words, I forget, but... You know, that idea that nothing can stop me. You know, I'm just, I'm an immortal here. I will fly. I will be here forever. You know, when we're young, we have those kinds of thoughts. So as we age, as we enter our 60s, our 70s, we have the opportunity to explore what life is like when it is not primarily oriented around success, pleasure, pride, praise. Because what happens? Those things begin to disappear 
and perhaps, perhaps uh, our values about them change as well. A life not defined by the search for praise, for success, for feeling really on top of the world all the time. What would that be like? We are so used to thinking in those terms that it may seem impossible to imagine. But consider what it is like, and this is, so one, this is one of the wonderful things about retreat, when you have all this time, every day, on and on, into the night, you have 24-7 access to mindfulness. There's, no, there's nothing in your way here, except your own <laughs> hindrances. And maybe that's all you need, but... Uh, <laughs> We like to think that, you know, at home we don't have time and it's not the right situation. And, you know, it's challenging out there, it's true. But here, here you have this continuity of invitation. There's a continuous invitation going on to look within, to be here rather than in the past rather than in the future. A continuous invitation to be here. So there are times on retreat, especially perhaps, when you are uh, sitting, you are walking, and there is contentment. Anybody here have some contentment? Let's have a show of hands. How many of you? Well, yeah, thank you for helping me prove my point. And that's that practice gives us this experience of what it is like just to be alive, just to be here, just to feel this precious moment that has no particular significance, really. It's not dramatic, it's not, (laughs) you know, it's not going to win you the lottery. But it's giving you something. What do you call that? What is that? When you're peaceful, you're calm, you're at ease with yourself, at home in yourself. It's so simple. It's so available. It's a wonder we don't avail ourselves of it more often. But what often happens is it doesn't get our attention so much because it's so plain, so ordinary, so quiet. Just quiet, you know. It's not announcing some great achievement or anything. And we don't give it much significance. Wes Nisker, who's teaching another retreat here at this, at this moment. They're doing a nature retreat outdoors. But years ago, Wes said something that I... <laughs> it just gives me a chuckle every time I hear it, so I'd like to share it. He said, what we really want is perfect peace and endless excitement. <laughs> Somehow we want both of those. It's not enough just to have the perfect peace. We also want some kind of excitement. It's a kind of craving we have for drama, for, you know, excitement, intensity, something like that. So here is an old person who lived hundreds and hundreds of years ago. His name was Shin Chi Chi. He says this, In my young days, I never tasted sorrow. I wanted to become a famous poet. I wanted to get ahead, so I pretended to be sad. Now I am old and have known the depths of every sorrow, and I am content to loaf and enjoy the clear autumn. That says a lot. Okay, so 
What has drawn me to teach on the, this subject of aging and dying and awakening is the fact that the more I've done and the more I've seen in my own heart and mind, I can think of no better curriculum for this stage of life than to study and practice the Buddhist teachings. The last stage of our life may include success, it may include praise, it may include quite a bit of pleasure, but it is not our focus, it's not what we're about having to achieve. There was a very uh, thoughtful gerontologist by the name of Jean Cohen who I think very brilliantly described life after 60 as a new developmental stage in human evolution. He described, and I'm going to read you what he said about this stage. It's a stage between adulthood, the end of adulthood, you could say the end of our responsibilities as an adult, the beginning of retirement perhaps, the the stage between adulthood and true old age. So he, he, he said this. The reality of adult life of this stage of development is a much richer and more complex tapestry of struggle, growth, and creative potential. We are at 60, 70, and older not so very different from children of four, five, six, or older who struggle through developmental transitions and life changes. We progress at our own pace, each of us. If we struggle or hesitate at times, it is not because we are older and less capable, but because we are in the process of developmental transition which often goes unrecognized and therefore unsupported. As a result, we often misunderstand the nature of our struggle and overlook the tremendous opportunities for new growth. It would be absurd to suggest that a child who cannot read at age three will never be a reader. And yet, we judge ourselves just that harshly when we limit our expectations of life at age 70 or any age to what we are or what we know or what we can do at that age. Instead of seeing ourselves as works in progress capable of lifelong learning, growth, and change, these developmental steps require the same leaps of faith, risk-taking, and the emotional vulnerability as they did when we were five and learning to tie our shoes or say goodbye to our parents at school. They also offer a similar potential for discovery and delight as we age. Just as we celebrate the toddler's struggle to walk, we need to recognize the steps of adult development as a building process not a crisis or a dead end, and celebrate the creative potential possible for each of us on our separate journeys. So that's a different vision of what, how we might begin to think about our own aging process, that we are in a developmental transition and that we can, instead of feeling, you know, like he says, instead of feeling like we're failing because we're slower now, we can see that we're learning something new that may have great value for us. So as we grow, as we change, as we 
have the perspective of years of being here on this planet, we learn. And to be open to learning is a good thing because it, it accelerates that process of, of learning. Um, I want to read you a poem, but first I think I'd like to share with you something that uh, one of the senior monks in our tradition, Achan Sumedho, said about getting older that really I think is uh, helpful. And that is that Achan Sumedho said, two qualities are important in our elder years. And he's, he's... I think in his 80s now. Two qualities are important in our elder years. The first is to realize it is okay not to know. And the second is to be open to learning, to discovery and surprise. And this is why meditation is so such a wonderful ally for us in our aging process because it is so full of discovery and surprise when it is working for us. It is also true that our practice thrives on curiosity, on this willingness to not know and be open to seeing things we haven't seen before. It also thrives on our own self-honesty about what we are experiencing. And that is a key piece of practice. And it is what inquiry thrives on, it is what our mindfulness practice thrives on, to learn to recognize what's here, moment to moment. There is a poet named Elizabeth Bishop who uh, wrote a beautiful poem about her own discovery process, her own discovery process about loss. She learned from reflecting on the losses that came to her in age, and she learned from these losses. So I want to share with you what she said. It's a poem called One Art. She says, the art of losing isn't hard to master. So many things seem filled with the intent to be lost that their loss is no disaster. Lose something every day. Accept the fluster of lost door keys, the hour badly spent. The art of losing isn't hard to master. Then practice losing farther, losing faster. Places, names, and where it was you meant to travel. None of these will bring disaster. I lost my mother's watch. And look, my last or next to last of three loved houses went. The art of losing isn't hard to master. I lost two cities, lovely ones, and vaster, some realms I own, two rivers, a continent. I miss them, but it wasn't a disaster. Even losing you, the joking voice, a gesture I love, I shan't have lied. It's evident. The art of losing's not too hard to master, though it may look like, like disaster. I love that because it, it, it reflects her own learning. You know how when we lose something or when a crisis comes unexpectedly, it can so often feel like a disaster. Right? Is that true? Yeah, yes, a disa- this, is a dis- this is a complete disaster. You know that feeling? You, you just can't see any other thing but disaster. And then what happens? Life goes on. You survive. You understand it from a different perspective. And you see it wasn't. Maybe it even brought you some unexpected gift. You saw it was not a disaster after all. But that's a perspective that can only come through 
after, you know, living through it and going on and seeing how life, the sun comes up, the moon, the flowers bloom. I remember after my father died, I was quite young, I was 16, I was shocked that the lilacs were blooming. At the age of 16, I just thought that was the end of the world with my father dying. But the lilacs kept blooming. I'll never forget that. That was my first Dharma lesson, I think. Life goes on. So mindfulness shows us what else is here beyond our stories, beyond our ideas about what's going on, beyond our narrative about what's going on. There's an Audubon guide to birds. If you're a bird watcher, you know what it's like to go out with your guide to birds, look for the birds. I see people looking around, looking, and they're very patient, you know, they look. Anyway, they're out there looking for birds. The Audubon Guide says, if there's a difference between the bird and the description of the bird in the book, believe the bird. (laughs) I think that's very good advice. And it is a mindfulness lesson, really. Are we going to believe our story about something or what the reality is in our direct experience? Believe the birds in our own experience. So we are almost out of time. Um, I've said quite a bit here. And there's always more, but I think that I will end with a poem that I often read on retreat. Well, no, let me think. I think I'll also tell you something the Buddha said, because this, is, this would help your practice. Because this idea of uh, being open and curious is very related to the practice of mindfulness and of being here. It's good to be curious about what is actually here. So the Buddha, you know, often people think of Buddhism as a teaching in non-attachment, that it's, well, you're not supposed to be attached to anything. But the Buddha said, no, that's not entirely true. There is one thing it is very good to be attached to. So he gave a teaching called One Fortunate Attachment. What could that be? The present moment. That if you're going to be attached to something, that is the go-to place to go, to be quite attached to the present moment. So he said, let not a person revive the past or on the future build his hopes, for the past has been left behind and the future has not been reached. Instead, with insight, let him see each presently arisen state. Let him know that and be sure of it, invincibly, unshakably. Today the effort must be made. Tomorrow death may come. Who knows? No bargain with mortality can keep him and his hordes away. But one who dwells thus ardently, relentlessly, by day by night, it is he, the peaceful peaceful sage has said, who has one fortunate attachment. And I would say that over years of practice, it becomes just second nature to orient towards the present. To be here becomes a wonderful gift in your life. It becomes a source of so much uh, beautiful qualities of peace and calm and well-being and delight and joy and happiness and everything is right here. It really is. And so there is this sense that it's worth cultivating this capacity just to rest in the present, 
delighting in the play of the mind, delighting in what comes that you could not have imagined. Every time you sit, there may be something unexpected or surprising. But only if we are open, only if we are in that state of, as Sumedho said, not knowing, not holding on to our ideas about things, not believing the stories we tell ourselves so fiercely, but opening ourselves moment to moment. So this is where I'm going to stop for tonight. And thank you for your kind attention, and I hope this has been somewhat useful to you. And so let's just gather our energies for a moment before we end. The past has been left behind. The future has not been reached. Today the effort must be made. Tomorrow death may come. Who knows? So we have about 25 minutes for walking meditation. It's very lovely outside. And by the way, be sure to look for the simply beautiful little new moon appearing, perhaps a little later in the sky. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.